Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. Our heart is that everyone would find and experience true sanctuary that's only available in Jesus. We're currently in a series called Break the Soil out of Hosea 10-12, where we're giving the first three weeks of 2024 to prayer and fasting, uh, trying to break the hard soil of our hearts and really seek the Lord in this season. Uh, would love to have you pray with us. Just a quick note, our teaching often does include um, an, some discussion and community response. We do intentionally edit that out of this podcast to preserve uh, the confidentiality in the Sunday experience. So you'll likely not hear the full content or context of the teaching, but still our hope is that this will encourage you and equip you. And really, we're just so honored you're here. All right, here it is. Just a little disclaimer on the front end. A, I feel like very novice in this. Like I am growing myself in it. Uh, again, I've never, I don't remember hearing a sermon on it. I don't remember expounding on it. Certainly not practicing it as a, you know, as a, as a young Christian or anything. It wasn't until like five years ago that I just really got, I, had, I heard my first sermon on it, got, felt an invitation to, and, and still now, I mean, um, it's not, it's something that I'm starting to try to practice and put into my rule of life. And, but, but you know, I'm not the gold standard here. So, uh, and, and that leads into the second disclaimer. I'm borrowing heavily on the sermon. Um, John Mark Comer and his Practicing the Way has like a four-week course on fasting. It's really good. John Tyson, he's got a book called Beautiful Resistance. It has a chapter on fasting. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project has a teaching on fasting that's really, really good. And a couple of books, Arthur Wallace, God's Chosen Fast. I think it's like the gold standard on fasting. And then Derek Prince, Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. So if, if you hear it come out of my mouth this morning, just assume I'm plagiarizing one of them in this. Uh, and uh, we'll be good. So uh, but before we get into really the nuts and bolts of fasting, uh, it's no secret that San Francisco is a foodie town. Uh, I just read, actually, according to a 2023 ranking, by a food consultancy group, Data Essential. San Francisco is now ranked the most food forward city in America. Congratulations. Uh, we're ahead of New York, LA, and Miami. Uh, we boast of 31 Michelin star restaurants, or second only to New York. Uh, we have a whole region just to the north of us, Sonoma, Napa, that's world renowned for its culinary experiences. People travel from all over the world to enjoy the food and drink of this region. If you follow so San Francisco social media accounts, like Secret SF, it's like every other post is a new restaurant that's opening, a new experience that you have to go through. Often social conversations revolve around, where did you go to brunch? What restaurants have you tried? What, you know, it's just part of the ethos here. In fact, moving here, it was kind of interesting how much restaurant culture and foodie culture is like a part of this culture. Despite the high cost of living here, San Franciscans spend nearly 13% of our income on food. Food is a $113 billion industry in the Bay. Um, and just in general, America is known, right, as a place you can have three meals a day and probably a whole lot of snacking in between and maybe a nightcap after that, right? Uh, it's just a place where we all have an abundance of food. And it's not just about having food, it's about having food variety, having food creativity, having food presentation and ambiance. And 
all, so on and so on. And it, that's not a bad thing. Kelsey and I celebrated our birthdays this week. We went to a nice Peruvian restaurant in Bernal. Shout out Atkins to your neighborhood. Uh, Piqueos, very nice. We love it. We, you know, uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's a gift uh, from, uh, from, from God. Um, and even if you're not in a season of life where those types of restaurants are accessible or um, you have kids so you can't go out very much, I mean, for me, like a perfect evening, if I could design a perfect evening, involves like takeout Indian food on a couch on a Friday evening watching Netflix with a glass of wine, right? Like it's just, uh, you know, something about food is intrigued to who we are as humans. Um, but in America, we just have so much of it. Um, we actually mistake appetite and hunger for being the same thing. As John Tyson's book, um, he was talking to a Christian in a persecuted church, and he asked him about what he thought about the American church. And he said, pause for a second, and this person said, you have so much food and so little power. I thought that was interesting. Um, it's no surprise that because of all of our food that we have, um, that three quarters of Americans are obese, over 30% of children are obese. And not only that, only over 30 to 40% of the food that we produce in this country actually goes to waste, right into the landfill. 133 billion pounds of food, $218 billion worth of food is not used. That equates to 325 pounds of waste per American. An average family of four spends $1,500 on average a year on food that they don't eat that goes to waste. Junk food is more accessible uh, in, uh, because it, 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 to lower income people and just more accessible and cheaper in general uh, because of the way that we subsidize our food system in America. Despite all of our food, uh, wealth and accessibility, actually 870,000 people in the Bay Area alone are food insecure. Uh, across America, that number is 35 million. Over one in 10 people have trouble accessing food, despite all of the overwhelming food that we have. Food deserts are a thing. Uh, one third of the Bay Area is classified as living in a food desert where they don't have easily, or not easily accessible to, or ac access to healthy food, part of the reason why lower income um, areas or lower income zip codes have lower health scores and actually lower life expectancy. Um, and it's interesting, on one hand, we have this crazy food excess and a worship of a food culture that results in overindulging in food and all sorts of food injustice. On the other hand, our culture worships the body, the over-sexualization, of the body, which is leads to body shame and body insecurity, an absolute epidemic of eating disorders that you know all about. The result of all of this together <laughs> is that not just that we have an unhealthy relationship to food, but actually we are way more driven and dare I say actually mastered by the body and the bodily impulses than we care to admit. Uh, food and bodily desires have way more power than we want to realize. In psychology, there's a term called the pleasure principle. It refers to, quote, the instinct to seek pleasure and avoid pain to satisfy 
biological and psychological needs. The pleasure principle. Um, it fuels the id in Freudian psychology. Um, it's the lowest actually form of motivation and action. You know, most psychologists agree. It's seen as immature. It's what motivates kids and toddlers. Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, only to do what feels good in the moment, only to, um, to, to, to give way to your in, in, impulses. Um, and yet, our society, as we know, has, in, has elevated this pleasure principle, this giving, um, you know, giving, uh, 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 giving away to your giving way to your impulses, to the highest ideal. Do what feels good. Follow your heart. You do you. Um, it's, this pleasure principle is what has yielded to massive personal debt in America. It's yielded to an explosion of divorce in America. It's yielded to addictions and so on and so on. It's all the sorts of things where the reward is felt immediately in the moment, but long term it leads to devastation. Um, and this tricky part, this bodily drive, this pleasure principle, it actually opens us up to be manipulated by others uh, and uh, other people and other, other forces, whether it's advertisers and clickbait and the little red dot notifications on your phone, feeding that desire, those impulses, the bodily desires to satiate you know, your, 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 your hunger for the immediate right now or whether it's our sinful nature, what Paul calls the flesh, or maybe other malevolent forces that are at play in the world wanting to manipulate that bodily instinct. Not to mention, if we're ever to like mature, to become uh, beyond you know, childhood, we can't be blind to the fact um, that, that we're operating from this pleasure principle. So, question is, what in the world does this have to do with seeking Jesus in San Francisco in 2024? Is there a practice, maybe, that could free us from this bodily temptations that we find? If you open to Genesis 2, uh, verse 7, from the very beginning, I heard some people kind of going back here. Uh, verse 7, Then the Lord formed a man, that Hebrew word man is Adam, from the dust of the ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adama, where we get the word Adam, and the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. In the very beginning, we were created from the dust. Later on, it says, from the dust you came, from the dust you will return. We are, from the ground, we are physical beings, right? We don't have a body, we are a body. But at the same time, the next phrase says, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word is pneuma. It's the exact same word. We get the Holy Spirit. So from the very beginning, we are both physical and spiritual beings fused together. And man became a living thing. We don't have a spirit. We are a spirit. We don't have a body. We are a body together. And it's interesting, in the beginning, God created the animal kingdom, right, which is 100% physical, not spiritual. He created the angelic kingdom, 100% spiritual, no physical. But man and woman were completely different. We are spiritual and physical. And fasting 
is a dis of all of the spiritual disciplines or practices that you can engage in, is a distinct bodily exercise. So when we give ourselves to prayer, right, it's a spiritual exercise. We're praying in the spirit, with the spirit, maybe with our mind as well. But when we fast, it's fundamentally a bodily experience. We're doing something with our body because we are physical, bodily beings. If we go to the next uh, verse, or next chapter in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, uh, this is a verse you're probably familiar with. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? That should be uh, familiar to the, the passage we just read about in Matthew 4. A lot of similarities going on here. Did God really say, questioning God's word, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, must, we may not eat from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say, you sorry, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It wasn't until a few years ago that it kind of clicked for me that the first sin, the original sin, involved food. It involved food. Now, to be clear, it wasn't all about food. It was about the lie behind, but still... It involved food. We were supposed to have dominion over the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom to, to, to take care of it and keep it. And in this story, actually, both the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom now has dominion over us. There's an inverse. And I think this shows from the very beginning there's a connection between our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies that sometimes we don't appreciate. You circle back to the text we just read, Matthew 4. We see a replay of this story. Jesus in the wilderness the enemy comes and tempts Jesus after fasting for 40 days. It says he was hungry. I appreciate that about Jesus. He was hungry. And yet he did not give in to the temptation. He's the second Adam, the new Adam that overcomes. And where we fail, he succeeds. And we have victory in him. And he has overcome uh, temptation. Um, so our discipleship to Jesus involves both the spiritual as well as the physical. Obviously, there's lots of ramifications here, um, but one is, one specific one is actually followers of Jesus throughout history have done this practice called fasting, and I do think it's been neglected largely in the Protestant church and Western world. Um, I don't know, if, maybe not for you, but I, again, I never grew up doing it. I saw one survey of a large mega church that kind of surveyed their people. Only two percent of these thousands of people church incorporated practicing regularly, over 50% had never fasted before. Um, and in spite of this, fasting is actually having a comeback moment right now. Anyone uh, participate in intermittent fasting of dieting? <laughs> you know, like I think I've got a work team um, in my day job of like 15 people. I think like eight people right now are practicing intermittent fasting. And it's kind of perplexing to me. It's kind of, I think it's kind of interesting to me that the dieting world is so much more passionate about this practice than the Christian world is, you know, and we've gotten these things, these tools. Um, so anyway, historically, 
Jews in the time of Jesus actually fasted every week, Monday and Thursday, twice a week. In the early church, the early Christians actually changed that, adopted it, but changed it, wanted to be different and distinct. So they would uh, fast every Wednesday and Friday. Wednesday in memory of the denial of Christ, Friday and for Good Friday. Um, but every single week, two times a day, they would fast from sun up to sun down and break the fast together as a community after the sun went down. Lent actually was originally a 40-day fast. And the only reason it was not actually 40 days, I think it's 43 or 44, 46. The only reason they added extra days to it, because, um, because to your point of feasting, they wouldn't fast on the Sabbath, or not the Sabbath, the, the Holy Day. The Sabbath and the Holy Day, that's what it is, 46 days. Um, most people think that, um, or a lot of scholars think that actually Ramadan in the Muslim community was taken from Lent. Lent came first, and then actually their practice of not eating till sundown was actually adopted from the Christian community. Um, John Wesley, as late as that, asked all of his followers, he wouldn't ordain any of his followers unless they were fasting twice a week, which I don't know that, that was needed to be that, uh, that. But you read about Saint, fasting from St. Augustine to Calvin, all of the above. Um, it was a part of the Christian community. Uh, so this isn't something kind of we're, we're, we're making up. Um, so what is fast? What is fasting? First, let's talk about what it is not. We're going to talk about what is fasting and why do we fast from here. What is fasting? What is it not? It's actually not just abstaining from anything. Um, a lot of people will say, I'm fasting from social media. I'm fasting from, uh, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, biblically, fasting is always connected with food. Um, so, like, I'm going to take off social media for the next 21 days during this time. Uh, if, if God is lead, leading you to abstain from something, it is the practice of abstaining, abstinence. It's great, um, but it's, it's not it, technically fasting. So just, just so you know, fasting does involve food. It's not a dieting technique. And actually, um, there's some debate here. I don't need, we don't need to be too, like, find a point on it or... But some people feel like they have an axe to grind when you look at fasting. But the Daniel fast or like a, an altered diet, actually, scripturally, none of that is actually referred to as fasting. Fasting is actually giving up food or drink um, completely. And so we'll talk through it. What, what is a fast then? Simply put, not eating food to feed, on, to feed on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. John Piper describes it as whole body hungering for God. Dallas Willard called, says it's feasting not on food, but on the Lord and doing his will. Gentazine Franklin says, simply stated, biblical fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. And I like what Wesley Duell says, fasting in the biblical sense is choosing not to partake of food because your spiritual hunger is so deep, your determination and intersection, intercession so intense or your spiritual warfare so demanding that you have temporarily set aside even fleshly needs to give yourself to prayer and meditation. Yeah. In the Bible, there's 46 mentions of fasting in the Old Testament, 23 in the New Testament. Most fasts biblically and historically were one day, again, sun up to sun down. But there's examples of three day, seven day, 21 day, and 40 day fasts in Scripture. It's done both individually. You see Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Paul, Anna, and others fasting individually. But it's actually most often done communally. Uh, it's the date of atonement. Uh, all of Israel fasted for 24 hours every year, as Manette was referring to. 
Second Chronicles, Joseph, Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. Esther proclaimed a fast for all of her people. In Nineveh, the king uh, prepared a fast for everyone to repent. In Acts, there's multiple accounts of the church fasting together. As you put on, see on your screen, there's fasting for public calamities, times of mourning, private afflictions, approaching danger, ordination of, mini- of ministers, and more. So this is all throughout Scripture. Um, Real quick, some types of fasting, just so you know. So there's the absolute fast, the normal fast, and the partial fast. This isn't scriptural, but a lot of people have come together and say, you know, put these in these, these, these tidy categories for us. The absolute fast is actually no food and no water, which is crazy. I would not recommend doing that if you're not, like, directly led by God or and under medical supervision. But you see it in Acts 9 with Paul. You see it in Moses he actually did 40 days without food or water, if you look in Exodus 34. So it was a miraculous fast. He should have died. Ezra, Esther, they did it. Um, no food or water. Again, I think most of us will live in the normal fast, which is abstaining from all forms of food, but having water. Uh, that's what most of the New Testament has. A, a lot of people these days as well will add juice to that list. So, um, abstain from solid food, but add juice to the mix. Uh, especially if they're doing a prolonged fast of, of more than just kind of that 12-hour that period. And then the partial fast, which we already talked about in Daniel, when Daniel um, only ate vegetables and not the fancy meat, or the Israelites in the wilderness eating manna, or Elijah only eating simple cakes. Some people have called that the partial fast, and I think there's value to that. If God is calling you to that, again, there's a debate whether that's actually a fast or not. If you're doing it for the Lord, I think he loves it, you know? So I don't know that we need to put too hard a point on it. Um, and I will say, too, I mean, just pastorally, obviously we already talked about, like, the, 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 the eating disorders and food. And, and if you are, like, or in a nursing situation or a young mom, um, obviously you want to be very sensitive to how you fast and why you fast. And it is about the heart. It's not about necessarily you know, exactly the ins and outs of how you do it, but following Jesus. But, so that's the overview of what fasting is scripturally, and I can give you these slides if you want to kind of go look up the references. But I want to spend most of our time in why we fast, why we fast. And I'll, I may skip some of these and go through them um, depending on our time. But first, I think it's just to be like Jesus. Jesus fast. And uh, to be a disciple, we've kind of got a three-part framework we throw around. Being a disciple of Jesus means being with Jesus, like our up posture, spending time with him. Being like Jesus, being formed into his image, the in posture. And then actually doing what he does, like acting, like that's our out posture, doing what he does. One of the things Jesus, we see Jesus doing in the scripture today is fasting. As we say in our liturgy, it's a delight to share your traits and to do what you do. It's the delight of your children. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 17, uh, twice he says, when you fast, do this. There's an assumption that you would fast, not if you fast. And the Sermon on the Mount, actually only three spiritual disciplines are mentioned. Giving, uh, prayer, and fasting. Uh, So it's one of the three that he gives in his seminal kind of message, the Sermon on the Mount. The mount. To be clear, I don't see a, a, a direct command in Scripture or an instruction in, in, in Scripture to fast. 
Um, and to be clear also to your point, Billy, like this is not to earn anything from God. If you don't fast at all, you are still a loved child of God. If you fast every day, you're not going to be loved anymore. <laughs> you know, like this is not about identity. Uh, but we want to be, there's an invitation to be like Jesus, be like our Savior, our Father. Uh, number two, to starve the flesh and feed on the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says, so I walk by the Spirit. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. I think the flesh can be described as maybe like disorder, our disordered loves, our desires for things that are not ultimate things so that you are not to do whatever you want. Tyler Staten defines fasting as, fast, as prayer with the body. It's our way of praying with the body. It's saying, I know I need food, but more than food, I need the living word of God. Um, because we all need food. Like it's not something we don't need. Like every one of us needs food. But actually, it's, it's a way of saying there's something I need more than food, and it's God. Fasting is a way to wake us up to the reality that we're frail, that we break our uh, illusions that we're independent and we're in control and that we are self-sustaining and, and actually remind us how weak we are and how needful we are of something outside of ourselves. Richard Foster says, more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. David said, I humble my soul with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. If they were, are within us, they will surface during fasting. You will get hangry, right? Like, it's not, a, it's not a spiritual experience for those who have fasted, you know. It doesn't make you feel great. It's hard. At first, we rationalize our anger is due to our hunger, and then we know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. Fasting builds the suffering muscle the muscle of self-denial that Jesus calls us to. He says, in this world, you will suffer. There will be trouble. Um, and fasting allows us to like build that muscle a little bit so that when that suffering comes, when that trials comes, we may know how to handle it and how to turn to God where our strength comes from. Um, Deuteronomy 8, I won't read it, actually. I'll just gonna, but you may, um, there's another example of God actually providing uh, uh, taking away food, uh, even from the Israelites, in order to bring us to Jesus, uh, or to himself, rather. John Piper has this great quote. It's a little long, but this is so good. Uh, I don't always quote John Piper, but just want to uh, bring this to us. It says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the tr prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keep us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land 
a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable, almost incurable. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches of this life. In another place, he said the desire for other things enter in and choke the world and prove it unfaithful. The pleasures of life, the desires for other things. These are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts from God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can be deadly substitutes for God. Part of the enemy's strategy is to lull us to sleep with trivialities and pleasures of the life. Adam and Eve were tempted, and part of the temptation was, that apple looks good. Esau sold his birthright for a stew when he was hungry. Children of Israel failed to get to the promised land, in part because they said, in Egypt we had that soup with leeks and honey, and onions, rather. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but in fasting he had the power and strength to say, man shall not live on bread alone. It's fasting that gives us the ability to starve that flesh. Number three, as our, actually as a response to an experience with God. This one actually surprised me as I looked through Scripture. I usually think of fasting as like a way to like contend with God for something in my life. But actually, the three 40-day fasts you see in Scripture, the three people who, who fasted for 40 days, which are um, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, the Law, the Prophet, and the New Covenant. They all fasted 40 days. Each one was actually in response to something God had done. A lot, uh, Moses went up to Mount Sinai and had that crazy experience with God. Then he fasted for 40 days. And it was after that that the Ten Commandments was given. Elijah, when he had that huge showdown with Baal, you know, where he got the, the sacrifice, poured water on it, and the fire of heaven came. It was af- right after that he fasted for 40 days. Jesus, right, happened, right before in Matthew 3, what happened before, it began his ministry with the affirmation of the Father. The, dove, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and he said, this is my beloved Son. The audible voice of God said, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. That happened immediately before. And then it said, the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness to fast. It was almost like they needed that time to digest what God had done. So maybe if you've had like this crazy experience and encounter with God, it's not actually to get something from God or to like contend. Or it's actually as a response to what God has done. Um, number four is a cry of repentance. Um, this is all over scripture. Um, I'd leave you with 1 Samuel 7, 2, if you're taking notes, 1 Samuel 7, 2, and Joel 2. Uh, but just for time, I'll go to Jonah 3. I think this is a pretty incredible experience. Jonah, you know the story, went to Nineveh, um, and it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's pronouncing the destruction, the judgment on Nineveh. It says the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on their sackcloth. So the whole city began to fast, cry out together. Verse 10, it says, 
when God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. As a response to their aware of their sinfulness, they, the whole community fasted and it brought repentance. Actually, most of the fasts you see in Scripture, at least in the Old Testament, it is connected with this idea of repentance. When they realized they were not living as they should, not living in accordance to God. They, they fasted as a sign of their repentance. And every time God met them there, God saved them, God relented, he, he held back. And this idea, and there's a big theological debate, can you change the will of God? But it, it does say God relents <laughs> in this passage and others like it. God responds to a contrite heart. God responds to a heart that is fully yielded to him. Um, number five, to receive guidance and direction. If any of us feel like we're in a season where we want guidance, we want, we want to know what the next step is, where does God lead us? In Acts 13, you see in the early church, in the church of Antioch, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, while they were worshiping and fasting, so they had a, 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 a habit of fasting together, they had a rhythm of fasting together. Then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. It was in the place of fasting that God reveals his plans, that God called people out. And actually, this was the start of global missions. This is the first time anyone was sent out. And this would change the trajectory of the entire world. We're sitting here today because a church in Antioch fasted and God said, hey, I'm called them out for a new destiny and sent them out. And so if you're feeling directionless, if you're facing a big decision in your life, I encourage you, surround that with fasting. God may just meet you there, may call you out. You, you, when, we were, when Kelsey and I were um, deciding whether to move from Nashville to San Francisco to be a part of this thing, we had a season of fasting to hear from God. When we were deciding to step into this thing this last summer, and, and, and to lead it, we, we wanted to hear from God and we gave ourselves to fast. I just encourage you, God speaks in those moments. Number six, this one was actually a big learning for me too. Why do we fast? To remember the poor. Isaiah 58 says, and this is not the frame that I think about fasting in. This is imp- impactful. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? To the early church, actually fasting was connected with this idea of taking care of the poor and justice and actually, you read a lot of the early church father writings, and when they're talking about fasting, the idea is actually they would take the money they would have spent on food and give it to the poor, or give that food to the poor. This idea of fasting, um, in Hebrews 4.15, it says, we do not have a high priest that cannot empathize with our weaknesses, right? And so part of following Jesus is trying to empathize with the people he's called us to love and to serve. And with fasting, we voluntarily like experience discomfort. We put ourselves in a position voluntarily to experience discomfort in the form of hunger that we know that loads of people involuntarily have to experience. What, what better way to empathize with the poor that Jesus says, you know, calls us to love and 
to serve. It's impossible when you're fasting not to always be thinking about food. I dare you, try to do it. You're always thinking about food until you're always having in mind those who don't have and you're remembering the poor. Um, and so I think it's just a powerful moment for us as a church to, to be mindful, especially in a city like San Francisco where there's a lot of need for food. And then finally, we'll, we'll end here, uh, for breakthrough. Um, some things only happen by prayer and fasting. You know who said that? Jesus, right? <laughs> he said it, we just studied it a few weeks ago, a few months ago in November. In Mark 9, he says there's a, that uh, story of the disciples trying to pray for this demon-possessed boy, and they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't, and, and, and Jesus came, and he immediately cast him out. The father said, um, Father actually said, if you can heal. And Jesus said, if, of course I can heal. He cast him out. He repents. I, uh, I, I do believe Jesus helped my unbelief. And then the disciples asked, like, why couldn't we cast this one out? And he said, some, this kind only come through prayer and fasting. Fasting has actually been linked. If you don't have time to get into it, but with the fall of communism, there was a whole group of churches that were fasting for that. With the fall of apartheid in South Africa, all sorts of justice movements, churches coming together, fasting, contending, saying this isn't right and we want breakthrough. Historically, when God's people have turned to him through fasting, he breaks through with radical change. Moses' 40-day fast resulted in the revelation of the Ten Commandments. Hannah fasted, and God released a prophet who changed the destiny of an entire nation. Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national day of fasting, and God saved the nation of Israel. Esther, sorry, called for a fast, and her people were delivered and their enemies routed. Nineveh fasted. God relented from judgment. The church fasted, and people were released into their calling and set the world on fire for Jesus. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and overcame the temptations that held humanity in bondage. Adam's failure completely undone, and he overcame sin, Satan, hell, and death for us. Some things only happen through fasting. Church, as we've done it today, it's no hyperbole to say church, as we're doing it today, has resulted in the largest decline in Christianity in the history of the West. Maybe it's time to try something else. Maybe there's something else to do. Jesus says some things come only through prayer and fasting. We've been at this for a little bit now in Sanctuary Church. And let me tell you, if things stopped today, this would have been a raging success at Sanctuary Church. I mean, people are in the kingdom of God that would not have been had it not been for God's providence through Sanctuary Church, right? People have been loved, found family, and broken through. But obviously, we're not where we want to be. We believe this is just a taste of what's to come. And we have so much heart for what God wants to do in San Francisco. Many people come to know him. Less than three people out of 100 in this city know him. And we believe God wants to do a mighty work here. But he hasn't, he hasn't, we haven't tasted it yet here in San in San Francisco, in, in Sanctuary Church. And that's why, as a part of what we're doing in this 21 days, we say, let's try this. Some things only come through prayer and fasting. Let's give ourselves to this and see if God would break through something here for us as we hunger for God. David Mathis says, fasting is a desperate measure for desperate times among those who know themselves desperate for 
God. And I just want to say, we're desperate for you, God. We're desperate for you. So we'll close here. If that was a little bit too much for you, <laughs> a little dramatic, let me bring it down just a, just a notch, and Danny can come in and, and lead us. Um, it's New Year's time. People have all sorts of resolutions and goals and dreams for the new year. You might have some resolutions yourself. Maybe this year is the year that you want to achieve financially. Maybe this is the year that you want to lose some weight or get in the best shape of your life. Maybe this is the year that you want to advance in your career. I don't know what it is, but it's the beginning of the year and I'll tell you, say this. If you resolve, if we resolve to make this the best year of our lives spiritually, I firmly believe that this will be the best year of our life. That if we give ourselves to the Spirit, if we give ourselves to Jesus and we say this year I want to break up that unplowed ground, it is time to seek the Lord, that it will become the best year that we've had. It will be a breakthrough year. So righteousness for yourselves, seek the fruit of his unfailing love, break up your unplowed ground, it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains his righteousness on us. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello at sanctuarysf.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father. <laughs>